Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 166. It's titled, Do We Really Need Growth? Recording today's episode, On the Road, Run Vacation in Camp Ellis, Maine, near Saco on the Maine coast, having a lovely time. We first went to Maine back, well, I've been there several times, but as a family, we loaded up our Honda Odyssey minivan with our three kids, LaPrille and their dog, Maggie, and drove across the country. And we spent two months in the fall of 2009 in Maine, stayed in Cape Porpoise near Kenny Bunkport. Came back in 2011. So we were thinking about taking one of our kids, or both of our kids perhaps, attending school here. And now I'm back because LaPrille's taking a class this week at Ferry Beach Conference Center. And uh, I'm, I'm hanging out with my daughter. We're hanging out in Maine, visiting some old sites. And then there's really two types of travel. There's a the travel that you're exploring and you're exploring in new places and, and maybe moving around. And then there's the travel where you go back to somewhere familiar, where you've explored before and you have some layers of memory year after year as you've gone back. And that's what this trip is. But we're talking about growth. Last week, we we discussed how value creation by corporations require them to generate returns on their cost of capital, above that cost of capital, the cost of their debt financing and, and the, the expectations of what equity shareholders require. And, and that really got me thinking about this idea of growth. That, this, that sort of assumes growth is required. We're going to talk about that today. And are there, is there other models to, does everything have to grow? Do we, and it, it's a challenging subject. And I, and I admit, I don't have all the answers here. I'm still struggling with this. But as, as I mentioned, we're in Maine. And as you go back to a place you're familiar, you tend to look at what has changed. And what has changed in Maine since we were last year in 2011 is McDonald's now serves lobster rolls. What are lobster rolls? Well, Kathy Guntz, she's a longtime Mainer and a James Beard award-winning food journalist says, here's how she describes a lobster roll, a Maine version of a lobster roll. She writes, a hot dog roll, center cut that is toasted. Preferably buttered and then toasted, filled with nothing but fresh lobster meat. Big chunks, not shredded, not frozen. The meat is tossed with mayo and given, it kind of gives it a little bit of creaminess. And she says, that's your grade A lobster roll. Now in Connecticut, it's a little different. There they serve warm lobster in butter on the roll. But in Maine, the lobster is cold. It's like a lobster salad. Typical lobster roll here at a, at a a restaurant, local restaurant, $17.95. McDonald's has lobster rolls. It's a seasonal item, $8.95. It's served with lettuce, tomatoes. I believe they use the bun that they use for the chicken sandwiches. And the lobster was previously frozen. Now, the amount of lobster you get is, is pretty big. That's actually a little bigger. In fact, we did, my daughter and I, we did a taste test yesterday. We bought a $17.95 roll 
from the, I think it was called the Taste of Maine, or no, Maine Bites. It's in Fort Williams Park in Cape Elizabeth. Bite into Maine. Ooh, not Maine Bites. Bite into Maine. And paid $17.95. We compared it to the McDonald's roll and tasted it. Now, when you pay more for something, sometimes there's the placebo effect, the idea that it, it, it tastes good because you paid more. And so we really tried to be objective here. Should have done a blind taste test is what my, my daughter said, but we didn't. So we had it on the cover of this episode, cover photo you can see. You can kind of compare what they, they both look like. But there's a difference. And the difference is the more expensive roll, it's the texture. There, you can tell that they're individual pieces of lobster, of fresh lobster, bathed in mayo, whereas the McDonald's is not a bad-tasting roll, but it's a little more mushy. It kind of, the, the lobster pieces kind of, either they disintegrate or they come together, has a little bit more of an aftertaste, but not, not bad, but it's those individual pieces. Why does this matter? Well, it gets back to this idea of what economic growth is. Economists measure the growth in the economy by the change in what is known as the gross domestic product, or GDP. That's the dollar value of the output of goods and services, what is produced. Not the amount of things that are produced, but it's the dollar value. And so a $17.95 lobster roll contributes more to gross domestic product because the dollar value, that output, same amount of lobster in the roll as McDonald's, but it's more valuable, mainly because it, it's, it's a more delicate presentation. It, it's not as productive. It's less efficient because the lobster is fresh, and, and so it's not been made in a, in a big culinary kitchen in, in the sense that it, 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 I guess, has been processed there, but it's just not, not as efficient. But it's more valuable, more value per output. This is important because when we usually think of growth of the economy, we're thinking of more, 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 more things produced. But it isn't necessarily more things. We can have growth, economic growth, if we are making better things, more delicious things that, that cost more because the process potentially is less efficient. And, and it's important because we look at the main lobster industry. Let me share a little bit what's going on with that. Back in the late 90s, there was overfishing. And so the, the lobster harvest just weren't as good. There were too many fishermen or, or lobstermen, lobster people. All the articles I read said they, were, they called them lobstermen. So we're going to go with lobstermen. But at the time, the main, the, the government divided the, the coast into seven lobster fishing zones. So they were lettered A through G. Each has its own council that has some limited authority on how the zone is managed. But the, then they put waiting lists. And so they capped the number of lobster boat licenses allowed as well as trap licenses. So, and, and that formed a waiting list because people want to become lobstermen, but there was only a certain amount. So they, so they capped it. In fact, there are about two. 0.8 million traps, 2.7 million traps permitted. 
It peaked in 2005 at 3.3 million, but right now it's about the same as in 1998. And there are 7,280 licenses back at which peaked in, in 2004 and 9361. The rules are if you ha- if you're a license holder, you have to be on the boat. So you can't get a license and then outsource it to somebody else. It, it has its owner operated license, which means there is no corporate fishing. Matt Jacobson, he's executive director of the Maine Lobster Collaborative, says that's inefficient, certainly, but it's also enormously profitable in terms of sustainability. So we don't have corporate fishing. We don't vacuum the bottom, meaning, I guess, the bottom of the ocean. Another, uh, Jack Thomas, who is a, a lobsterman, said, the whole industry started by, you know, fathers, sons, daughters getting into the business and teaching. Here, this is how you do it. This is the proper way. Take care of it so you can have it for tomorrow. Now we're talking about sustainability because there's only so many lobsters. And, and so it's not hyper-efficient. The, the main lobster industry is not exclusively focused on growth. It's focused on permanence, being there for the generations of he- ahead. And, and now, business is great. The, in 2016, the statewide lobster harvest surpassed 130 million pounds. That's the fifth year in a row it's been over 120 million pounds. 80% of the lobsters in the U.S. are caught in Maine. Pricing's also been good, $4.07 per pound. That's, the I guess, the second consecutive year it's been more than $4. And it's interesting because the amount of lobsters being caught is significantly more than 20 years ago. And so the question is, why is that? In, in terms of economic growth, more productive. Now, not more productive because they're getting better at baiting lobsters. It's a, it's a combination of things. One, it's climate change. The waters are are warming. The John Hare, who's the Northeast from the Northeast Fisheries Science Center, says warming waters have created a very beneficial situation in the Gulf of Maine. So they're right at the optimum temperature for lobsters now in the Gulf of Maine. And earlier he says that further south in New England, it's becoming too warm. So they're, they're not able to produce or harvest as many lobsters. And so it's been a combination of more optimal water temperatures, but also a commitment by, by the industry in terms of to make sure that it's sustainable says even before the law required it, lobster men began restricting their catches, throwing back undersized or oversized lobsters and egg-bearing females. And so the idea was not growth at all cost, but sustainable. And now growth is happening. Now, that, that's, that's the supply of lobster. Then there's the issue of demand. As the amount of lobsters production or, or harvesting began to increase, that actually began to impact price. In fact, there was a, a crash in lobster prices in 2012. And that's where the industry went about and said, we, we need to do a better job of, of getting more people to eat lobsters now that we have more lobsters. And, and the way that they, they do that is they, they actually they export to China. In 2010, 0.3% of all U.S. lobster exports 
went to China. In 2016, that jumped to 13%. That's according to Wiser Trade. And, and Chinese consumers are paying upwards of $100 for one and a half pound lobster. Portland lobsterman Dickie Black says, China saved our bacon. The price was at an all-time low, and we aggressively opened a market over there, and it became very popular with the middle class. So the lobster industry is sustainable. It's grown, but it, it doesn't have to grow. I mean, they've decided that permanence is, is much more important than, than growth. So they're not increasing the number of traps. They're not increasing the number uh, of lobster licenses. And that, that's caused some pushback. Think about episode, it was episode 128, I believe, on episode 127, Investing is Wayfinding, where we talked about the New York taxi medallions and how there was sort of an open market. You could sell your taxi medallion. So there wasn't a waiting list. You could, if you wanted to be a taxi driver in New York, you could become a taxi driver in New York as long as you bought a medallion. In, in Maine, you can become a, a, you can do a two-year apprenticeship it, before you're age 18 to work in, in the lobster field. It costs about $65 for a license, and then you have to spend 1,000 hours and 200 days with a licensed fisherman on a boat. But at that point, at over 18, after you complete your apprenticeship, if you want to get involved, you want to have your own boat, you, you have to get on a waiting list. And some of these waiting lists, some c- can last years. I think there was, in 2015, about 290 people on a waiting list. And the only way that you get to, to participate is somebody retires and gives up their license. And, and, and there's, the pushback is, well... If there's that much demand, then existing people in the lobster business should be able to sell their license and, and create a little bit of a nest egg. But they've, they've not done that. Instead, they've done a waiting list. So if you're not going to open up to the free market where you can buy into the business, then you have to wait your turn. And, and some, some people waited 10 years, and, and that, that's sort of this ongoing controversy. But it's not as if being a, a lobster man is extremely lucrative it it's a good good job if you can get it in the sense that so in 2016 there was let me find the data here 547 million dollars went to lobster men so after this before expenses so just basically selling all the lobster that they had at around roughly $4 a pound, that netted lobstermen $547 million. Now, if you divide that by 7,200 boats, that's about $76,000 per boat. So it's not extremely lucrative, but it's a great great way of life because obviously people are not exiting. They're, they're sticking with it. And, and, and so there's, there's a waiting list. But that's just, this is how they're going for permanence instead of all-out growth. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 
10 million or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. This, there's a concept, there was a paper, The Seven Laws of Regenerative Enterprises. It was published in November 2014 in the Harvard Business Review by Kim C. Korn and B. Joseph Pine. And it, it kind of contrasts to the quote I read last week from Mihir Desai in The Wisdom of Finance, where he says, Finance's answer to the question where value comes from is simple. The capital you are entrusted with has a cost because the people who gave it to you have expectations for return. Their expected return is your cost of capital. You are a steward of their capital. And the sin qua non of value creation is that you have to exceed their expectations and your cost of capital if you want to create value. That's how value is created, according to him, which is a little different in terms of the the corn and pine article. They, They write, we need first to understand enterprises along with the humanity and activities that make them up. And this understanding must be developed in light of economic value creation, the primary function of a business enterprise. So they recognize that value and creation is important. Their definition of what value creation differs. And two, accepting the challenge that an enterprise ought to be able to thrive forever if it chooses to. For if your enterprise does not plan on thriving forever, expect it to fail eventually. The lobster Business in Maine is structured to survive forever. And then, but not all businesses are. I mean, that, that, that's sort of the ongoing point. When we talked about this idea that the, the value of stock is, is the value of the future cash flows discounted and put in today's dollars. When companies consider a particular project, they're looking at future cash flows estimated cash flow out into perpetuity and putting it in today's dollars. So the underlying assumption is it will be an ongoing endeavor. Now, I guess some projects will have a, a terminal value in terms of just it won't go on forever. But generally, there's the idea that business should continue. It should have permanence. E.F. Schumacher in his book, Small is Beautiful, agrees with that. He says, from an economic viewpoint, the central concept of wisdom is permanence. We must study the economics of permanence. Nothing makes economic sense unless its continuance for a long time can be projected without running into absurdities. There can be growth towards a limited objective, but there cannot be unlimited generalized growth. And and that's where there's a conflict there. We, We can have permanence, 
But permanence needs to be accompanied by sustainability. Yet some of the financial metrics that we talked about last week assume ongoing growth. Economic growth assumes the dollar value of output is increasing, and oftentimes that's translated into the amount of things being produced is increasing, but it's it's the value of those things. So if we have more refined or expensive taste, maybe less efficient, then, then perhaps that's one way around it. But getting back to this article by the Seven Laws of Regenerative Enterprises, I won't go over all seven laws, but there were several. I'll go over four of them. The law of humanity. They state only the enterprise that enriches humanity through the knowledge embodied in its business activities creates offerings of unquestionable economic value. They're saying value is measured by whether it enriches humanity, not whether it exceeded its cost of capital. And that's going to be an ongoing discussion, and I don't have a conclusion there. But the, it, what they're suggesting is, and it could be both, it can be projects that exceed the cost of capital but also enriches humanity. If it penalizes humanity, then it's passing on cost externalities to, to those not involved in the enterprise, and that, that's just wrong. They have the law of vitality. Only the enterprises that attain vitality through its incessant destructive recreation produces the wealth necessary to survive. They're saying in order to the survival is not based on growth. It's based on destructive recreation, renewing, regenerating. It's circular. And it's very close to when I, there was an article by Stan Stallnaker in the Harvard Business Review the next evolution in economics, rethinking growth. He says cellular economic theory suggests an alternative to linear growth, circular growth. In the body, cells grow, cells die, new cells grow, new cells die, on and on. We sustain ourselves through regeneration. In business, a form of staged regenerative regenerative growth could become the norm. The growth may not even change the size of the economic body. In other words, everything getting bigger, it's a regenerative growth. And I I find that concept fascinating. So that's the law of vitality. There's the law of potential. Only the enterprise that unleashes potential through meeting its workers' innate needs induces human engagement to its fullest. And finally, the law of meaning. Only the enterprise that infuses meaning through a shared purpose affects alignment among fully engaged workers. And so that's that's the laws, seven laws of regenerative enterprises. I'll link to that article and the others that I mentioned in today's episode in the show notes. And you can get that at moneyfortherestofus.com. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide where I send out a weekly email newsletter summarizing that week's episode with show notes and uh, links to the show notes and other valuable content. So you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. The main lobster industry is being regenerative. It's being sustainable. It is making sure it's there for the next generation uh, of lobstermen. And it, it's experienced growth because it's tri- striving to be more sustainable, aided a little bit by, by warming climate. The Stallnaker gives a couple other examples. He says, Katika, a Swiss wood furniture maker, is reforesting at a rate greater 
than their production, using profits from their sales today to ensure the availability of resources later. And so it, it's it's being regenerative. Example of a brewery in India that's using cellular economic thinking to grow its bottom line, he writes, without producing and selling more beer. Instead, it's using chaff and grain detritus to create fertilizer and biofuels, regenerating resources to lower their own production costs while widening the life cycles of their input. So this concept of regeneration is and, and growth in a sustainable way or not even trying to grow the entire pie, but trying to just create more opportunities for workers. It just fascinates me. And I, and I but at the end of the day, it, it, if we have that, unless profits are increasing or cash flow increasing, then the value of the stock is not increasing, which means the returns are going to fall short of expectation of investors. And so it's it's sort of a conundrum. I don't I don't have an answer. I think about it in terms of my own business. How much is enough? In the sense that I'm so used to when I was running an investment firm is we're always doing budgets, we're growing, we're growing, 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 because that's just sort of the underlying assumption. We want to increase the value of the enterprise so that we could all have more melt, have more wealth, have more money, and. Is it always that? At some point, you have enough, and and at that and, and I'm kind of at that point in terms of I have a nest egg. I, I'm not by any means rich, but enough that with a a lifestyle business and my current investments, I can sustain myself for for decades ahead. And and so there's enough. And I go back to Aristotle politics, his, his volume politics. He says. The household branch of wealth getting has a limit inasmuch as the acquisition of money is not the function of household management. That's what we do. We have our households. It's not just the acquisition of money. Hence, from this point of view, it appears necessary that there should be a limit to all riches. Yet, in actual fact, we observe the opposite takes place. For all men engaged in wealth getting try to increase their money to an unlimited amount. Consequently, some people suppose that it is the function of household management to increase property, and they are continually under the idea that it is their duty to be either safeguarding their substance in money or increasing it to an unlimited amount. The cause of this state of mind is that their interests are set upon life, but not upon the good life. And the good life is a sustainable life. It's a life where you're growing, not just wealth. I think about how do I want to grow? I want to grow in knowledge. I want to grow in empathy for others. I want to grow in experiences. I don't need to continue to add to the digits in a bank account. And we each, we all have to kind of decide for ourselves how much is enough. What, what's our number that, that we're striving for? What's the cash flow that we need to live on and then it comes down to the overall economy because the economy just assumes an, an ongoing, continual growth because that's what the metrics are based on and it just doesn't seem sustainable and it's de- there's definitely a, a conflict there. So to answer the question of the episode, is growth really necessary? I think it is. But I think it's not just the growth in wealth. I think more important is the growth in knowledge, experience, vitality, and to find a way to continue to grow 
the economy, but do it in a way, in other words, grow so that everyone can participate, they can have jobs, but do it in a way that, that's sustainable, that's regenerative. And and we'll just have to, to sort of muddle our way through to figure out how to do that. And probably the best place to start is in, in your own business and, and to sort of kind of debate these questions. Growth, but growth at what cost? And what type of growth are we trying to pursue individually as businesses and the economy as a whole? So that's episode 166. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Just general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.